This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. We'll start with a word of prayer, and then I will invite up uh, Dr. George Jackson, um, and he will uh, give us, uh, as each of the sessions, I've tried to start with something very practical and talk about how uh, true education is happening at different institutions. We heard from Souls West and from the health program this morning, and uh, now we will hear from Weimar Institute, a place I know so well, amen. And, uh, and, and a good friend of mine, Dr. George Jackson. And then we'll move into the meat of our, our, our series. And that will be on uh, how the world recognizes its need for change in education or in schooling. And, uh, and then we'll close with a question and answer session. So I hope it's been a blessing so far, those who've been here. Uh, let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord God, we are just so thankful that we have a loving God, that you're with us and that you give us so many good gifts, such as repentance, what a gift, and salvation, what a gift, and a changed life, what a gift. And Lord, you're there with us in all. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, talk today, that you would be in our hearts and our minds to clarify the things most important. And Lord, would you please use us those that speak as instruments to share the good news of Jesus to the world around us in all the things that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Jackson, true education. Is that happening anywhere that you know about? Right. Thanks. It's exciting to be here. Um, it's been about five years since I left my job as a professional uh, biologist, scientist, left my country and left my home, coming for a vision that I wasn't really sure, although I felt the call of God. And soon after that, Dr. Siebold joined the faculty. And uh, what I'll give you my perspective on what direct things I've been involved with and how my perspective on true education from the chair of the health sciences department. So at, at, at Weimar, we're, we run a pre-med program. We're working on a, a nursing program. We have massage along with other departments. My, a specific area is in the sciences and as well as being Dean of Student Services so I in interact with students a lot. So I got four points I'd like to share from my perspective on my kind of hotel notepad, right? Uh, one is academic, so I got academic, practical training, ministry and student relationships. One thing is we do need academic excellence. God expects us to be the best, not just mediocre. So, and there's things we have to train you for. Our students sit the MCAT. You can't just prepare for an MCAT working on the farm, as important as that is. It takes a lot of preparation and a lot of training for that. Or they may be nurses training for uh, NCLEX and other things. So we have very qualified teachers, very careful that the pe people that are teaching are highly qualified. You will not find a better chemistry teacher anywhere in the world than what we have at Weimar. I mean, you just won't. <laughs> I'm a career biologist. I spent many, many years as a researcher. I teach biology. So I bring a perspective to the class as a professional that was working in the field. And, and we, 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 we directly have the opportunity to, to deal with issues. So creation, evolution, we just hit them head on. I mean, every now and then they pop up with a textbook in the textbook and we, you know, we have that opportunity during the class to share and discuss and show 
a lot of mythology that's behind that. Um, we're small. I've come, my training was in Australia, and so I came from more of an Australian-European background. I had never taken a multiple choice test, although my high school years were in America. And so we have smaller classes. I actually have a, a chance to work with my students, help them to become researchers, how to do scientific writing, uh, and express themselves in writing. And, and that's probably something you cannot do at a larger school. It takes a lot of time, but those are opportunities to train in the scientific thinking. So, you know, we got to follow the laws of the Medes and Persians. We, you know, I mentioned MCAT. We're working on a nursing school. If you're dealing with a nursing board, the laws of the Medes and Persians have to be fulfilled. I mean, you just have to do it. Accreditation is another thing. There's things that need to be fulfilled at a high level of excellence that we should be able to do better than anybody else. Uh, we're still working on that. Uh, nursing accreditation. Okay, okay, that was our academic aspect. For practical training, it isn't just, it isn't just learning out of books. Now, we have practical training on the farm or doing manual training. Have you mentioned pack times to them? Okay, we have, Dr. Siebel will talk about that. We have practical appl application training periods where first semester we go out for a week, second semester we go for three weeks. We go out and we do something practical. It may be renovating the girls' bathroom or it may, may be coming on a trip with me to Lebanon doing health expos in some exotic part of the world, Zimbabwe or Lebanon. I, I become a missionary. I never went on mission trips before coming. I never thought about it. I was just a church member. And uh, so that's been new to me. But particularly for the, the training of physicians, and I was brought with a vision that Dr. Nedley had was to train a new generation of physicians that have the new start mindset in the lifestyle medicine, which he was finding it harder and harder to find doctors that he could work with that had that mindset. So our students don't only do the, the more traditional academic book training, they have two classes where they rotate through New Start, where they, they work with the patients, they minister to the patients. Andrew Watnabe sings to the patients. He's here at the conference. Uh, and they, they're up in the morning exercising with the patients. They're ministering all day long. They're eating the meals with the patients. They're studying their diseases. They're doing research on the drugs that they're taking. And they're watching how that patient changes over that time. They rotate through that twice. Now we have depression recovery on campus. And now for our senior medical students, we want them to get more involved in depression recovery. It, it, to some extent, it's even a more amazing ministry than New Start because the results are so dramatic and so fast. Uh, my daughter, uh, we have two students that are now in Loma Linda. We have 100% success rate at pre-med at, at Weimar. 100% success rate. Our first two students that stuck with that first pioneering program are both at Loma Linda uh, doing well. And the training that they've received is very different. In, in many, many of the students have opportunities to do what only medical students do on rotations. They're actually doing that with some of the medical stuff they're doing. We go overseas, we run health expos and, 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 and health ministry, both in the, in the surrounding area or on overseas trips. And then there's lots of practical ministry that's happening on Sabbath, door-to-door uh, -door things that are happening. We had a group of students that went door-to-door -door singing, singing to people just down the road from where I live. The group of students are there on a Sabbath afternoon. They sing, were you there, Amaris, with that group? With the lady? Let's see if you were, when you tell the story. They're singing to this lady. The lady starts to cry, and she says, who are you? We, you weren't with that group. Who are you? My husband just died. Like, I just came back from his funeral. Like, who are you? That's my favorite hymn. They, and it was just an amazing, and then later on she saw them, they said, like, who are, are you angels? Like, who are you? And they were able to tell them who, who they were. And that lady, I met her, Luann, I think was her name. She's interested in coming to church, and she was just so blown away by some kids going to her door and singing to her. So lots of practical things that aren't just studying from books. 
We want students to be involved. We're, we're missing the point. If they're not involved in ministry, we're just missing the point. I tell students when I talk to them, this is not a time to just be training for a career. In this time in world history, I mean, you need a career, you need all that. That cannot be your primary focus. Your primary focus needs to be ministry, finishing the work, and have a career where you can, where you can mix the two. So that is our practical training. And then we do all sorts of other manual things on the farm or, or opportunity. A lot of students work their way. So they're doing practical work and doing practical training on campus. Uh, and the other one kind of moves into it. Point three was ministry. And they kind of, the practical training and ministry are kind of combined. And that's where I mentioned the overseas trips. Twice we went to Zimbabwe. Once we went to Lebanon. We're going back to Lebanon this year. The most amazing, I could tell you stories about Lebanon where the people said, that's not going to happen. You're not going to. Muslims don't come, this isn't being recorded, is it? <laughs> people don't come, they're just not going to come. We've been here for, for, people for generations have not reached out to the local people. It just wasn't happening. They said a few people will come. We had 600 people come to a health expo right down the bottom of the hill from Middle East University. It had never been tried before. Nobody, one guy brought his two wives. I mean, it was just amazing what we were able to do and how we could reach the people. Smoking, diabetes, they didn't know much about exercise. You know what, I realize it doesn't matter how you look, what religion you are, what color your skin is. If you're sick, you're sick. And the solution is the same, no matter who you are. So uh, I'm convinced by how medical ministry work medical missionary work will come together for finishing the gospel. So a uh, lot of local health expos down at the local mall, lots of things happening, incorporating health. Some of the kids went to a, a women's shelter and would do healthy cooking with them, play for the kids. Practical, practical stuff, just helping people with their basic needs. All those things in ministry, singing to people, uh, working in depression recovery, dealing with mental health, dealing with people who are sick because of diabetes. And then another area of the job that I love, I left my career thinking like, what am I doing? You know, I had a good job. I was at the peak of my career. I walked away from a gigantic international grant. There was a lots of exciting things going around the world doing stuff. But I left it all because I felt I needed to do something more and God was calling me. Well, a big part of my job is dealing with student relationships. And in my mind, that's part of the whole educational experience. There's something, you know, I have to have students in my office that need problems solved. I've had students in tears at times, struggling with their, with their spiritual experience. I don't, you know, yeah, I'm having a hard time. Well, that's a big part of ministry is helping each other, mentoring and working with students who are facing practical real life st struggles. Many of you maybe have family issues. It's pretty common these days for people to have really st real struggles in their, in their family home. That's a big part of ministry, a big part of our education. And at a small institution, we can do that well, I think, because we build relationships. We have uh, what's called family groups. So all our students are in separate groups. And a big part of that is having kids sitting on our living room floor. At 51, I took up snowboarding, much to my daughter's coaxing, kind of the peer pressure for my daughter. So, you know, I go snowboarding. I love it. It's fun. I think I have cracked rigs as I'm speaking to you now from my last. But anyway, um, lots of practical things, ministering, working together. The kids are our friends. We do things together. We do things as a close-knit group. We, we minister together. I'm not so big on singing. I kind of stand at the back when they sing. But anyway, I'll go. Um, you know, we have students that are older and mature and are getting into courtship relationships. What a, what a blessing to be able to, to counsel and talk with them. I'm involved with that with my own daughter. And, you know, it's, it's all part of true education. God has a... 
I guess the bottom line is God has a way to do something. The world has a way to do something. In many ways, sometimes there's a little bit of overlap. Many of the areas are very separate. God's way is absolutely foolishness to many of the ways the, the world does things. Uh, you know, with academics and things, sure, there's some overlap. We need excellence as well. And we need to come up to even the standard that nursing boards or medical boards have. And, we're, and we need to do that. But there's lots of areas where God has called us to a ministry, not the career. If you want to be a medical doctor, don't worry about the big car and the fancy house. Go to somewhere who nobody knows who you are or where you are and minister to somebody who really has a need. That's what we're meant to do. It's, and I think that's the essence as I continue on this journey of what true education is. If I had more time, we could talk about my cell biology class and all the crazy things and innovative things. He has great ideas. You know, I said, what am I going to do? I got this class. I, I, I don't want to set exams. I don't have the time. So we did a, we flipped the class. We had the students do the research. We had the students uh, prepare talks. And I think they learned more in that class than any other class. And they're going to remember things based by a student-driven, student-focused class. Amen. Amen. Did they take too much time? Yeah, too much. That's right. <laughs> I told you, I warned you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, appreciate it. It's uh, Dr. George Jackson, chair of the uh, Health Sciences Department and uh, Dean of Student Services. Been a real blessing to campus, a good friend of mine. And uh, I just love Dr. Jackson. I just, I, I actually, I just wanted him up here because I wanted to see him go, it's amazing. You know, I just love how he does that. He's just, it's, no, it's, it's just beautiful though, isn't it? I mean, if it wasn't beautiful, I wouldn't do it. I'd go, yeah, this guy's got a lame, but I'll, we'll let him talk anyway. <clears throat> anyway, let's pray together again. Uh, are we praying too much? No, I don't think so. All right, Lord, we just, we want to come before you again. We want to devote our hearts and minds to you. We don't want to lift up any person any school, we want to lift up Jesus. So in all we do, Lord, if we have lifted up ourselves or our institutions, Lord, we don't want to do that. Jesus is what we need. Jesus is what we need. Lord, we pray that you would uh, answer your prayer where two or three or more are gathered together, that you will be with us. And we look forward to seeing how you will answer that prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, this session, I want to share something with you that uh, I'm not sure if you know about. Um, every, uh, I've heard a claim recently that every nation on earth, or maybe it's every industrialized nation on earth, is in the process of reforming their education system. Now, that sounds like a pretty strong, bold claim. And uh, what's happened is we have many, many educational systems that have been learning from each other, and they've been a lot of equalization happening across them. You know, there was a European system and a Australian uh, used that system, and then we had the American system. And so there's a lot of cross-pollination going across that. And... Um, uh, different math programs coming from the uh, Asian groups and coming down in Singapore math, and we're learning all from each other. And so there's a lot of that stuff, which is, uh, there's a lot, of, lot more similarities that are happening with our education systems than has happened in the past and, uh, around the world. In the United States, there's been a huge call for change in education. 
And uh, if you were here with us a couple of sessions ago, um, I brought up this uh, kind of a timeline, and we talked about the development uh, in, in the beginning of the industrial age, where the common school movement was this uh, initial movement of bringing schools to everyone, which hadn't happened in America. So this was a new idea. And this committee of 10 that got together and set to a large degree, the, the curriculum and the time constraints of elementary school, uh, of uh, high schools, and, and, and really set the way things were happening. Now, after this had happened, there, had been, there have been calls for change. We, we shouldn't be doing things that way, right? Now, there's always naysayers, right? Well it's more and more and growing louder and louder. And in fact, once we really started to change the, and become in this information age, do you, do you realize we're in an information age? Do you remember, anyone remember the time when you used to dial a phone with a finger and spin it? And then you hate, I always hated dial like 989 because my finger would get sore inside of that thing, you know. Touch-tone phones were so cool. Beep, beep, beep. I mean, how fast is that, you know? And that, and that pay phones were all over the place, but cell phones, I remember the first cell phone I saw was my brother-in-law's, and he said, come on, we're gonna go flying in a plane. And I'm like, yeah, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, with this, yeah, with this phone. Well, I, I don't understand. No, it's the phone. See this briefcase and that phone on top? The briefcase is the battery, and then there's a phone on top of it, okay? And so we took this thing up in a plane, and we went flying, and we called my mom, and we're flying. Yeah, we're flying over top. Well, how can you be flying? You're talking on the phone. Yeah, it's a cell phone, right? You know, I mean, I, or whatever. I don't know what we called it. Mobile phone, uh, an airplane phone. You know, they, they, they existed in cars for a while, didn't they? You remember that? The car phone. My dad talks of the days when he was an executive and traveling. He had a car phone. But then he goes out of the car, and then it's no good anymore. So, oh, by the way, I should uh, mute my phone and not have it go on. Okay. So, we have all of this stuff happening, and so now we have this shift in, in from industry being the focus to now technology and uh, the uh, information age. And uh, so, w while this is happening, there is a, I just want to point out to you, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to share over these next few minutes this, this overwhelming criticism of the way we do schools. And then I want to show you how some schools are responding to that. Now, this, most of this session is about worldly schools. So the whole point is, is that we have made in these previous presentations is that schooling is very different than education, correct? All right, so we got this difference. So now the world, what we also recognize is that even though schooling and education are different, by and large, most of our schools are doing schooling. We're focusing primarily on the academic. And while we need to move this direction, I'm saying that the world is saying we need to move off that too. So if we're going to follow the world, the world's going to be moving. 
they're not going to be continue to do what they're doing now much longer. And so that's what I want to share with you. I want to bring you into this. Uh, a, a, a huge piece of this shift, making this debate far more public than it had been before, was a, a report called A Nation at Risk. And this report was, um, Ronald Reagan was president, and he decided that he probably ought to do something in education. I'm, I'm probably getting it, you know, not maybe not all the facts exactly right. But anyway, he decided to have a group come and do an educational checkup. How's our educational system inside of America doing? How are schools doing? And so they came up with a report, but he didn't expect the results. In the first page of the report, I want to re read you a section on that first page. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. What, what, does, that, what does that mean to you? Were they happy with the educational system? No. They were saying, it's so bad that if someone had forced that on us, we'd say, not over our dead body. Right? They'd go to war. We might well have viewed it as an act of war. Well, uh, one researcher, Charles Reigeluth, uh, has placed, placed it in this terms. He says, now listen, we have the agrarian society, the industrial society, and the information society. All of these, all of these times in which we live have, have been very uh, coded in the way that economics works. So how do you make money before the industrial age? Well, you had farms. You grew things, and you traded things, and you had animals, and that's how most people made money, unless you're part of aristocracy. But essentially, most people were farmers, right? That's just what, that's what we had. Then the industrial age comes along and changes that. And so now industry, people are making money, and we start to get all these industries. And now we're changing, and we're coming to an information age where information is now driving the economic structure. So. What he says is he says, take a look at this. Take a look at transportation, how transportation has changed. He says, take a look at families, how families have changed across these three ages. Take a look at businesses and how they have changed. And then he says, I want you to take a look at education. He says, education started with that one-room schoolhouse, and we've moved to our current system, and what is the next change? He says it, it should happen, it must happen, because the, the things that we value inside of our era change, and so our schools have to change. So, makes a compelling point. Um, changes in technology. There are all sorts of changes. Uh, let me get uh, directly into some of these uh, technology. How about mobile learning? Do you think mobile learning is going to change how people learn it all? How many have sat at a, at, a, at a lunch discussion and somebody said a word and somebody said, what does that mean? And somebody reached down or in their purse and they did what? Googled it, right? Pull it out, find out what that is, hit it on here, right? 
Yeah, we're guilty of that, right? We're guilty of learning at the dining room table, right? What, how does that change things? You see, when the motion picture industry first came out, they put movie cameras in the back of theaters, and they would record the theater experience. And why did they do that? Because it's the only thing they could conceive of using a movie camera for. Obviously, you wouldn't take a movie camera outside because the theater was in here. It was in the theater. And movie cameras started there because that's what they understood. Does that make sense? All right, so what happens is once technologies start to happen, we initially use them in ways of replacing things that we already do, and then they start to grow up from the, from the ground up, so to speak, and they start to change the way we do things. So now movie cameras produce movies, and they're rarely done in a theater, right? Okay, so mobile learning. How about uh, apps to supplement or replace textbooks? Right, that's happening more and more now, supplement, uh, supplementing textbooks, and soon, and probably some of you have experienced replacing textbooks. Uh, multimedia learning content. Uh, there are lots of pieces uh, of learning content that have been chunked. And so rather than have a whole class as a multimedia experience, you have something, uh, a, a discrete chunk of information and how it's learned and illustrated and tested, and, and it can be learned at any point in time. It can be learned by a 15-year-old or a 50-year-old, right? So it starts to break down some of the barriers of how things needed to be learned before. Peer-to-peer, -peer, right? And school-to-school -school collaboration. People can collaborate across distances and schools can collaborate across distances. There's uh, some of the Ivy League schools are trying to adopt um, schools in other areas to be able to help build their perspective. Improved evaluation methods. Evaluation methods couldn't be done to the level that they can now because technology can help to facilitate that. And, uh, and game-based learning is coming. There's a lot of research being done now on how people are learning through games. As, as anyone known of any, uh, maybe someone else of course, who could just get stuck on a game and you can't pull yourself out because it's so motivating, it's, well, I'll, I'll just get past this one level and then I'll stop, right? And you never get there, or you get there and you go, oh, that's cool, there's another level I'd really like. What gaming does is works with motivation. And so there's a lot of uh, learning theorists who are looking into gaming and to try to understand what's happening, what's the psychological impact, and how that's happening. So really interesting in how technology is going to change this whole thing. Um, in uh, Inc. Magazine, uh, there, there was an article called Six Ways Technology Will Change Education Forever. It says this, the university operates with these ideas. See if this resonates to you at all. Class, course, grade, credit, degree, department, and major. Not one of them is real. They're all academic functions. They're all just how we do it. Here's what's real. 
Student learning is real. Knowing things is real. Being able to do things is real. People will find alternative ways to teach those things. That's where the really disruptive stuff comes from. The point they're trying to make is this technology is going to drive changes in the way colleges and universities and elementary and secondary schools do things. It's going to change, it's going to change the whole approach of things. Uh, New York University President said is, says this, the status quo is not an option. We're in for what I call a radical restructuring of higher education today. Higher education, the way we know it, is going to be changing. And there's many, many people who are believing that. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, that I think also brings uh, pressure to change education is business. Now, has anyone been involved with corporate training at all? Anyone been involved with corporate training? Okay, uh, corporate training, before corporations existed, corporation, corporate training didn't exist. You can imagine why. There's no corporations to train, no people to train, right? So corporate training is a relatively new phenomenon as the industrial age grew. And what happened was when early educators, um, it, it, uh, people inside of industry wanted to teach their people, their leaders, a certain concept or way of doing something, what they would do is they would say, well, where do we go to find someone who knows how to teach? And where would they expect to go? Where would you expect them to go? To the local school to find someone to know how to teach, right? Because obviously people in schools know how to teach. So what they did was they went to and found teachers and they brought them back into their industrial headquarters and said, uh, now, okay, what we want you to do is we want you to teach them these things. And so what those teachers would do is they would bring those people from all over the world and gather them together and they would tell them what they needed to go and they would send them back out. Now, that cost a lot of money. It cost money to fly them over there. It cost money to house them and feed them and then fly them all back and the lost productivity during that time. So this education better be good. What they found is uh, uh, a researcher came up with these four levels of evaluation. And what he found is, is that uh, uh, corporations have a tendency to evaluate different than schools do. What schools were evaluating for was just on these first two levels. Number one, were you getting, was it a happy experience? So when someone would take a corporate exercise, or go through corporate training, they would ask the question, how was it? Did you like it? Kind of what they call a smile test. Did you like it? Were you happy? Oh, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, and that would be a positive smile test. All right, the second is, did they really learn anything? And the, and the learning really was from the beginning to the end. When they walked in, did they know it? And when they walked out, did they know it? And if you see a pre-test, post-test, you learned it, well then on, on level two here, we're considered satisfied. And by the way, education only typically values the first two. What's the third one? What does transfer mean? Any idea? Exactly. Can that knowledge be applied? Now, what a novel concept to apply something you learn. 
Let me ask you a question. What is learning for? To apply it or to share it to someone else, right? That they can apply it. So what they recognized was these methods that they learned in, from schools weren't working. And so they changed their methods. And then number four, a method of evaluation is return on investment. Was it worth what they cost? So what they're doing is they're doing more short-term workshops. They're doing on-the-job training and online training because those are cost-effective and they're bringing more transfer. Uh, it, because transfer, if they don't get transfer, frankly, it doesn't matter whether you learned anything if you can't do it when you go back, right? Because you have to be able to do that. So this whole corporate training is putting pressure on the world's schooling system saying you're doing it wrong. So there's a, whole, there's a whole group of people saying, I can't believe you're doing it that way. It doesn't work. So why would you do it that way? So uh, another, another group of uh, people who are putting pressure on, uh, on the way we do things in, in schools is uh, brain researchers. And uh, one researcher out of uh, Harvard, I'll give you one example of that, um, does, has a program called Multiple Intelligences. And so what he did was he studied uh, brain defects, of people who had gotten brain injuries to particular parts of their brain, and then he studied how their functions changed. And his goal was to try to figure out what parts of the brain change what parts of the person and their learning abilities. And so what he found is the brain actually, you know the difference between the brain and the mind? Sounds like it's raining outside, doesn't it? Glad we're in here, amen. All right, so the, um, the, the brain is the physical structure, the mind is where we think, okay? The brain is the something you can open the skull up and touch, the mind you can't touch, because that's the thinking part. So what he did was he said the brain actually has these components which give multiple intelligences to people. So what he found is there's, there's multiple intelligence. So the ability to uh, carry on language. Amen, right? An important skill. How about logical mathematical, to be logical in what you're doing? You know, we sometimes criticize, that's not very logical, what'd you do that for? Right? So logic is something we value inside of our society to a great degree. In fact, these two top ones are something in academics we value very, very highly. But he found more. He found that people had a thing called musical ability that was sometimes developed in school and sometimes not, but certainly not valued like logical, mathematical, um, or uh, linguistic. Um, and then he also found that there was a, a, a talent, a skill, an intelligence called visual spatial. So someone who has spatial reasoning. So if I tell you to imagine a cube, right? You know, a, a cube with six sides. And then I tell you to unfold the cube, what does the, what does that, uh, the outside look like? Right? Can you unfold it in different ways and see how it might look? Does that make sense? All right, so people with a 
high level of visual uh, intelligence can do that very easily. They can just look and say, oh, it looks like that. And, and they could draw it on a piece of paper for you or something. And others are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I know there was a cube and he said to unfold it, but I don't know what he means. All right? So, but that's, so everybody has these different intelligences developed differently. Um, body kinesthetic. Some have great physical uh, abilities and, and some people have less of that. Interpersonal, uh, between person, uh, between people, and, and also intrapersonal, between or, which is in and of ourselves, being able to deal and understand with the, the conversations you have with yourself. And, uh, and then the last one was naturalistic. So what he had done was taken these ideas and he had uh, developed this idea called multiple intelligences and, and tried to figure out how this made a difference in schooling and was saying, why are we doing schooling the way we're doing schooling when we have all of these mental capacities? We're not developing all of them, we're developing just a few of them. And then we're alienating other very important mental capacities uh, and, and we need to change what we're doing. So he was arguing that. In fact, uh, um, what he suggested is, uh, this is uh, the same author, Howard Gardner, suggests that the greatest, and this is a quote, the greatest enemy of understanding is coverage. How many have been in a classroom when you're trying to get it and the teacher says, well, don't worry about it, we need to keep moving, right? How many of teachers have said that, <clears throat> right? Because we're trying to deliver content rather than trying to teach young people. And instead of content uh, driving things, then learning needs to. Uh, also, uh, along the ideas of the mind, Daniel Goldman wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence. And what he found through uh, his culling of research was that success has a higher correlation with emotional intelligence than it does with IQ. And we try to build IQ and we value IQ and I have a wonderfully high IQ and aren't I amazing, right? As opposed to someone where we have a school system that's actually designed to build your EQ, your emotional quotient, your emotional intelligence, if you will. Then we have uh, researchers who are recognizing this, this amazing connection between the mind and the body. Can you figure that? Isn't that amazing? Our Seventh-day Adventist uh, heritage has taught us that well, and so it's not surprising to us, but to many people this was a big shock. In fact, a, a very popular book. Uh, here's a quote, the more neuroscientists discover about this process, the clearer it becomes that exercise provides an unparalleled stimulus, creating an environment in which the brain is ready, willing, and able to learn. Now, what a concept. I mean, we, the teachers figured this out with this thing called recess, right? They, they start to lose them, and so you put them out for exercise, right? Get them and get some exercise. But somehow, did we, did we miss this thing when we moved to high school? We're too old for recess? Or maybe when we're at GYC and the sessions are hitting so quick that we don't have time to go out and take a walk, right? 
or keep uh, you know, drinking our liquids, but, but health and exercise is a crucial component for this. Uh, let me do a bit of a summary. Research on how people learn and what we do in schools. Let me just give kind of a comparison of this. We know that students learn at different rates, but yet our schooling system is set up with a fixed start and end point. Does that make sense? It makes sense that we say that, but I'm not sure we know why we do that. In other words, some educators are saying we need to hold learning constant and not the time in the seat constant and allow learning to vary. Uh, we also know that people learn best when they're intrinsically motivated, when they're really interested in something, right? So imagine going to a GYC breakout session and dad says you have to come listen to this thing on education. And so you're here, like, okay, I'll be there. As opposed to someone who goes, oh man, I could learn from this. Here's some way I could learn, right? Boom. That's a, a whole different attitude of, of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. So in our schools, we do this thing called grades. And one of the reasons we do grades and we give grades out is because we need some sort of accountability for the students. If, imagine what would happen if we gave no grades, right? With our current system the way it is, how much work would people do? It's like, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, what is there to force you to do that? I mean, there, what's the accountability? That's the accountability, it's extrinsic. What's interesting is we also understand that extrinsic motivation actually decreases long-term intrinsic motivation. There's an illustration, let me tell this story. Uh, the story is told of a, uh, a professor of psychology who was understanding this learning theory. And uh, he was in his kitchen one day, and out in the alley, he heard his trash cans being kicked over. His trash cans were rattling around. And so he looked out, and he saw some young men out there. And so the next day, um, he sees the young men walking towards his house, and he walks out the back door, and he, and he comes up to them. And uh, he says, uh, hey, are you, you the guys that uh, knocked over the trash cans? And they go, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do about it, right? And, and he goes, I, I want you to do me a favor. He said, uh, I want you to knock over those trash cans, and, and I'll give you a buck apiece. Knock them down every day. And they go, oh, that's sweet. We can do that. We're in, right? So they go over, they knock the trash cans over, and they walk away, and... Uh, so he picks it all up, and next day they come by, and uh, he gives them the money, and uh, you know they come by, they they'll knock over the trash cans. They're like, "This is sweet. We're getting paid to knock over trash cans. This is awesome." So they do it a few times, and he goes out and he's paying them, and and one day he come, they come by, and he's not there, and they're like, "Hey, where's the guy with the money?" <laughs> I. I'm not kicking over any trash cans, and they walk away. <laughs> so the, the idea is, initially they did it for the joy of knocking over a trash can. And 
And the recognition is once they started getting paid for it, it lost its intrinsic value. It lost its intrinsic joy. And so this, the way we're wired is that when we get these sort of extrinsic things, it can, and it doesn't always, but it can reduce this, reduce this intrinsic. So we get hooked on the grades, not on the learning, which is a big difference. So what we know about learning is that we're whole beings. We know that uh, mind, body, spirit is uh, the, the or, or mind, body, moral uh, part of the person. Uh, we, we, the world knows that, and yet they also, in, our, in schools, focus on mental activities. They also know that there's far more than just memory to the, the mental capacities that they need to be developed, yet most of uh, schooling focuses on the, the men memory development, and uh, that's, that's obvious through a lot of the way that the testing happens that if you remember what was said, you'll do well, right? Those with great memories do wonderful. Those who have thinking capacities and maybe some of these other uh, abilities of creative thinking, well, yeah, it was a creative answer, but it was wrong, right? And so, boom, you're marked off and creativity isn't explored. Now, I, I don't take that too far. But the idea is there's a clear difference. Number one, uh, also uh, lifelong learning. Uh, educators also realize that the way in which you learn is the way in which you will learn. So in other words, if you learn in a classroom, it will be a good way for you to learn in the future. The problem is most jobs, you don't learn in a classroom. You learn on the job. And in fact, so much so that there's a saying that happens in the workplace, which happens in workplaces from garages to hospitals to accountants' offices, and they welcome them with this statement, welcome to the real world. To this wonderful graduate who has their new found bachelor's degree in accounting, who now is wonderfully qualified to be an accountant, and they welcome them with this great welcome to the real world. Now you're really going to learn how it's done. Now, what kind of a comment is that? You've just spent four years working on how to learn something, and they treat it as if it was nothing. That's because there's so much more to learn, and that the only way to learn it is in immersed in the activity. So that's what we know. Thus leading me to the idea practical application solidifies learning, <clears throat> and yet our schools focus primarily on theory. This is what the world's schools are saying. This is why they're changing and trying new things and discussing and books upon books and lectures on research and theory and, and, and school reform. It's, it's a huge business in the United States. Uh, I mentioned this in an earlier presentation. I'll, I'll share the details now. Uh, I was at a accrediting association conference for presidents and board members 
of schools that were accredited, and this was uh, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges, WASC. Um, uh, UC Berkeley and uh, other schools were present, and uh, uh, presidents of those colleges were in the room. The president of the accrediting association stood up, and he had a projector, and he had a little clicker, and he had a, a screen, and I remember it like it was yesterday. He clicked, and the first thing that he said was, higher education is broken. He clicked it again, and he said, higher education accreditation is broken. The whole sense of that whole day's meetings was disruptive technologies. They're going to change the way your university or your college works. They're, they talked about University of the People, and I'll get to, into some of those in a little bit, uh, how all of these places are changing the game that colleges have had a monopoly on learning, and now it's being opened up. And the box is being opened, it's going to start pouring. And the bubble on higher education is going to pop. It's going to change significantly. What that's going to look like, they don't know, but they're convinced it's going to change and that it needs change. Um, Arnie Duncan, does uh, that name sound familiar at all? Secretary of Education, said this comment. See if this, uh, see if this resonates with any students in the room. There's no secret that our current model of student and institutional aid is unsustainable. What does that have to do with? Student loans, anyone heard of student loans? Okay, heard about them and know them personally. Okay, what I'd like to do is show you a, a short uh, a comparison of credit card debt in America versus student loan debt in America. $693 billion dollars in credit card debt as of March 2012. Student loan debt was $870 billion. Uh, more recent numbers, $857 billion, and now it's over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Thus, the comment by Arnie Duncan, this is unsustainable. We can't keep doing this. And what happens to those numbers? What's, what do you think is going to happen next year? Yeah, it's going to go up until something pops. It's just another balloon that's going to get bigger and bigger. It's one of the, one of the reasons why I've said higher education particularly is going to change and that is going to change elementary and secondary because elementary school is designed for secondary. Secondary is designed for college, right? I mean, we have all these subjects. And uh, business leaders are saying, we can't keep doing the same thing. Uh, one business leader says it this way, our high schools were designed to meet the needs of another age. 
Have you heard of this name? Bill Gates. In fact, he is so animate about this that he's contributed more than $700 million towards the redesign and reform of America's public high schools. And I, I believe that number that I got was in 2006. Uh, combined, the Gates, along with others, spend almost $4 billion annually to support and transform K-12 education. People are trying to change the way we're doing things because they're not happy with it. PBS came out with a special. You can uh, order the DVD. Uh, it's called Declining by Degrees. Its whole premise is the, the system of higher education, uh, higher education in America is questionable. Are our students really learning? Are they really doing anything worthwhile? Waiting for Superman, a documentary on elementary schools and school choice, and talking about how elementary schools do things so poorly that these magnet schools and charter schools and people are trying to get in them to get a better education for their children and they can't find it and there's not enough room for them. And then, academically adrift. The subtitle, Limited Learning on College Campuses. This one was written and researched by a couple of academics about academics. And so it was a bit of a challenge for a lot of people to read. And what they had done was they were, uh, I probably should have pulled, next time I do this, I'll do that, is pull some of the data that uh, he used in, in the report and talks about how students had, a, had, a, a specific, well, had an amount of, uh, it was uh, critical thinking. They measured the amount of critical thinking they had and they expected to see that critical thinking grow, but they saw very little growth by their senior year in critical thinking in colleges. And, uh, and then lastly here is this uh, report that came out in September of 2012 uh, called Cracking the Credit Hour. You know what the credit hour is? Have, has anyone ever taken a college class for one hour of credit? All right, it's, it's, a, it's a, a report that says we can't keep holding achievement to time. We need, to, we need to hold achievement based on achievement and not time. And technology is going to help to solidify things that couldn't have been done before that we're able to, to do now. So one author says it this way. The present day educational system is damaging to young people. Evidence of this harm is being presented from psychological, neurological, sociological, statistical, and common sense perspectives. So the, the future is here. I, have anyone used Khan Academy recently? A uh, place where you can get uh, free online. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Khan Academy. Udacity.com, University of the People, Coursera, MIT's OpenCourseWare, EDX, and iTunes University, to name a few. 
of places where high-end academic content and classes are all available to you free of charge. Now, what does that mean to the university? And everybody's going, MIT, why are you doing this? Why are you taking and open this up? Harvard, why are you doing this? But now, these big name colleges are opening up their content. And they say, if you want the real experience, come here. Because this is just a portion of it. The real experience is living here. What time are we supposed to close? Okay, so we have about two minutes. Is it 4.13, is that correct? Okay. Uh, what I'd like to do is leave a little bit of time. Uh, what I'm going to do after this is over, I'm gonna show a short 10-minute uh, video on a school that has done things radically different. And if you're interested in seeing this, uh, stay by afterwards. I'll not include it in the presentation. We'll do a, a short Q&A. We may have time for a question, maybe two, if they're short. And, uh, and then we will uh, we'll close. And we'll have prayer now. Those of you who uh, need to slide out for your next activity can do that. We'll have a few question and answer, and then we'll move to this uh, uh, video if you want to see that. Stick around for that. Let's pray together. Lord, we're just so grateful. You are a loving God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be sucked into our culture without even thinking. Lord, help us to understand where our culture is leading us astray and away from your principles, away from principles that bring true joy and happiness to those that are just a false level of, of joy and happiness. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us and that our joy would be complete in you. We thank you for this time to talk and speak together. Lord, may you give each person a special blessing of how to apply these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, questions. I will try to remember to re um, repeat the question. Uh, for those of you who need to get water or to slide out, that's no problem. And anyone else have questions, I'll try to answer a question or two. And then I'll move on to the video. Any questions about, uh, especially about higher education or education and how the world is uh, getting fed up with their systems? Yes. Common Core. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, common Core is, well, let me contrast that. So the question is, what is the Common Core and how is that developed? Um, the United States does things differently than most countries. The United States does not have a core curriculum that everyone need, every school needs to do. That's far more common in other countries. They say, here's the way you're going to do it, and that's the way it's done. Now, in America, we have an education system which puts a lot of that um, off to the states, and then states uh, give some of that to the local uh, school districts, and then the district gives some flexibility to the schools, and the schools give some of that flexibility to the teacher. So. There's differing levels of that, but it's not a mandated core. 
So a group of educators and others came together to develop what they call the Common Core. The idea was that all states would adopt this Common Core that everyone should be able to say, this is what we do in school. So it was an attempt to try to bring some uh, unity in what is happening in schooling. So, in brief, there's probably others who know a lot more about it than I do. So, yeah, any other questions? You wanna see the video and have me stop talking? Yeah, I, I totally understand. All right. Uh, I'm going to come up here, and maybe you might want to adjust the volume just a little bit. Uh, we'll make sure that it's good. Clarence Wells spends two days a week rebuilding racing cars. Evelyn Sanchez spends her Tuesdays and Thursdays working at a veterinary hospital. And Shandell Wilson helps run a nonprofit art center. These aren't part-time after-school jobs, but school day internships that allow students to pursue their own passions in real-world learning situations. If we apply for 75, what exactly can we get done with that? The internship program is just part of a unique high school concept launched in 1997 in Providence, Rhode Island, at a school called The Met. You just think about how people learn. They learn when they love something. They learn when they have a passion, when they're interested in something. Um, they learn uh, subjects aren't broken down. You, you kind of think of homeschooling. If, if you were homeschooling your kids, you wouldn't put them in the living room for 45 minutes and then ring a bell and move them to the kitchen and study science for 45 minutes and ring a bell. You'd, you'd have them meet great people, read great books, do real stuff, and so that's how we said, let's see if we can create a school. The word passion, you know, like finding your passion, I never even heard of it until I came to the Met. You're like, what are you talking about? You're crazy, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm 14. So I, I didn't really know what to expect. I think everything kind of happened accidentally. Oh, look at the red cardinals. For Shandell, the happy accidents began when she met her first mentor, photographer Therese Grente. Shot with 35 millimeter. My best experiences were when I found someone who was able to have enough time to, to work with me instead of just giving me work to do. When I was with Therese, it was great. When I had a question, it was her that I went back to. It wasn't someone else. So you'll visually start seeing all that, like with the negative. We had good times. We were able to talk to each other. It was just very personal. So how far have you gotten so far? The Met's personalized learning philosophy begins with its size. It accommodates just 150 students who spend two days working at their internships and the other school days in a small advisory group at school. Fifteen students work with one teacher who helps them create individual learning plans and supervises their independent studies over the course of four years. Now is there a conclusion of some sort? I've gotten to know each one of them, each one of their learning styles. Um, their family situations, how they tick. I know when they're turned on to something, when something's going on with them. They've become sort of a family and they all refer to our advisory here as some sort of semi-dysfunctional family, but everyone cares about each other. You were doing the same shot at different exposures? Yep. Okay. It's called equal exposure, depth of field, stuff. 
I think having a relationship like that with your teacher definitely helps. It, it helps me learn because I can ask him a question. You know, I don't understand this. Please explain it, was, it to me it without so feeling embarrassed or scared. And this one's of my brother floating in a pond. It was another spare the moment thing. There are no tests or letter grades here. Instead, students study core academic subjects by conducting research. I talked to some people up at Brown University. Completing projects and giving presentations to their parents, mentors, and students in their advisory. By the time they apply to college, they've had 12 exhibitions, 13 exhibitions. They're amazing presenters. You can use your fingers in the water to work it off of the paper backing here. They blow people away at interviews. They have portfolios. They have resumes. They have a way to show the quality work that they've done. You have a Polaroid emulsion transfer. The Met claims an impressive graduation rate especially for a population of at-risk students, 90% of whom go on to college. So the Met concept has spread beyond Providence to more than a dozen other cities, including Oakland, California, where Evelyn Sanchez interns at a local veterinary clinic. I really like being here on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I even come on the weekends and I get paid. I want to pursue veterinary in the future, hopefully when I get out of high school. Can you turn on the anesthesia machine? I would love to go to UC Davis. I know that it's a very competitive school, but that's what I want to do in the future. I want to hopefully become a doctor. Good boy. So we'll let him soak, and then we're going to go do the neuter. Push him towards the wall. In high school, you know, what were you going to do when you grow up? Who knows? You know, it, I, I think it's better for the kids because they have more of a track to follow. And she knows now that you have to keep your grades up from ninth grade on, even before that. They don't just look at your last year. Where when we were in high school, it was more like, oh, just, you know, goof off and do whatever. And then towards the end, you know, pick it up. At an East Oakland body shop, Clarence Wells is studying math and science while rebuilding racing cars. I've learned a lot about cars, like how math relates to real world stuff. Um, I've been taking a physics class, and that's tied in a lot with the stuff I do here. I wrote a paper about like aerodynamics, and I'm learning a lot of stuff about that. My logic's getting better, and like being able to analyze something, solve problems. Also, what's important is um, like how fast and efficient I can do stuff. So like I think about that more, and I'm like doing homework, like what's the most efficient way I can get this done. Mentors like Dan and Karen Gallant believe the value of MET internships goes well beyond the work that's done. There are so many people that are adrift and, and the schools don't have any money for a lot of programs. They certainly don't have any money for vocational programs, as you've probably heard. And I think this gives them a chance to learn different skills and also to learn what they might really want to pursue as a career. I'm still learning, so that's one of the good things. Being at Midwest is good. They gave me opportunity to come here and pursue my dreams and stuff. They're having to learn to be responsible for things they wouldn't normally be responsible for until they got a drug. And we're not whip crackers or anything like that, but we do have a fairly high standard that we want things done to. 
While MetWest's curriculum is anything but standard, the school measures up on standardized tests. We don't do a lot of test prep, but we do take the test very seriously. Our seniors have the highest pass rate on the California High School Eggs exam in both English and math uh, for all schools in Oakland Unified. And I think part of this is because we're a small school. We know our students well. We know what they do well, and we know what they need improvement on. And we're able to tailor some individual curriculum to meet those needs. I watch them find this passion and develop from these angry young kids to these positive, socially conscious, academically high achieving kids who are doing things not because I tell them to do it, but because they are just hungry for it. For more information on what works in public education, Sorry, it gets a little loud there at the end. But isn't that interesting? So we will, uh, our next pre presentation is on what is true education. And we'll be talking very specific specifically about what that is. And that will be on Friday morning, tomorrow morning. And then the last presentation in this series is on Sabbath afternoon. And it is on what do teachers, what can teachers do, what can schools do, what can students do to help improve their own educational, what they have, where they're at, how, they, how can they improve it. So thanks and uh, God bless. One more word of prayer, huh? That you would bless us and give us a good day, a good evening, that you would give us a good night's rest and that Lord you would Help us again find places to apply these things and to share them with others so that we can understand them better. In Jesus' name we pray. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.